what can leaders learn from a sales expert? I used to think sales was something I didn't really need to pay attention to. My focus as a communications expert was to engage, take people with us, not do the whole tell and sell, which to me felt emotionless and directive and rarely won hearts and minds for actual change to happen. Over the past couple of years, I've had a rethink on what sales means, thanks to some great mentors and coaches. And I've come to realise it's a hidden gem for leaders to embrace. I'm Lee Griffith, a communication strategist, executive coach and all-round champion of leaders who shun the old school stereotypes. I'm here to help you get clear on your strategy, implement some self-leadership and connect with those you serve through your communications so that you can deliver improved organisational performance, engagement and reputation. Sign up to my newsletters to receive even more useful insights into how to be an impactful leader. You can also find out how I can support your organisation to better connect with the people it serves. Visit sundayskies.com to find out more. In this episode, I'm delighted to talk to Jess Lorimer, a bona fide sales expert and a mentor to me over the past year or so. Jess works with organisations and business owners to take the sleaze out of sales and show that it can actually be a real business asset. We talk about the sales skills that are relevant and transferable to leadership, and we explore what it means to be a leader who is neurodivergent. Enjoy. I'm delighted to welcome Jessica Lorimer onto the Leaders with Impact podcast. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. And I always say, and Max, my dog, obviously, who has been <laughs> on every podcast episode that I've ever recorded or ever been on. But we're both very excited. Uh, I love I love when Max appears in your... I can't have my dog at my feet because he will jump up at me at some point. So, <laughs> you know, Max just, just loves to snore the whole way through. Either he thinks I'm incredibly boring or he secretly has thoughts that he needs to share with the yeah. world. I don't know yeah. which. I, I would love to know, do dogs listening to your podcast, are they like tuning into a whole other conversation? Oh my God. Maybe that's it. Maybe there's like a, a poor tunes or something and I'm like <laughs> really highly ranked. Actually, Max has got anything to do with that in very low down rankings. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, as much as I could talk about dogs all day, um, we are here to talk about sales, but perhaps not as people would anticipate. So I want to kick off with, I suppose, um, quashing the stereotype that people have of sales. Because I think Mm. often you either think, oh, selling is you've got a shop front and you're trying to get rid of a product, or they think of this bro sales mm-hmm. style bit sleazy bit disingenuous a bit pushy and i be honest that was the perception i had for a long long time and was the reason why i was really uncomfortable when i started my business about doing sales stuff and i've had to do a lot of unlearning thanks to your helpers along the way <laughs> um and and i suppose in that unlearning i've realized there's some core skills that you need for sales that actually would have served me really well in my leadership kind of career my kind of past life as I call it and that was the reason why I wanted you to come on the show and have a bit of a chat about it so I'd like to start by what you see and define as sales so I think it's really interesting because I'm with you in that most people avoid sales like the plague and when I was working in corporate sales so what 14 years ago now I was that salesperson on that sales floor working with 400 other people who were in sales, just like that salesperson that nobody <laughs> likes. I think it's really interesting because out of all of the skills 
that you need in life, sales is probably the most transferable across all areas of your life. So if you have kids and you've ever got your kids to do something they didn't want to do, like go to school or put their pajamas on or have a bath, I don't know much about children, but these are the things I hear. Um, (laughs) Or you've had a, a partner who doesn't want to watch a film and you've gotten them to, you know, get into a reality TV show that you like or something, then you have sold because sales Mm. is about decision making. And I think the interesting thing is that when we look at what we imagine sales to be, most people feel like sales is about convincing people to do something they don't want to do or persuading people to do something they don't want to do. If we look at what sales actually is, it's about giving people transparently the information they need to make a decision. And the best salespeople will tell you that they don't really care what the decision is. And there are lots of reasons and metrics behind that. But the best salespeople are focused on helping people to make an informed decision and not actually persuading them to do something that they don't want to do. So you're not selling. No. Even when you are selling. Exactly. You're listening. Yeah. And I think that's that's the interesting thing is that sales is very much about listening to what somebody is saying and what somebody thinks their problem is and what somebody wants and then posing solutions that either meet the need or explaining why your solutions might not actually be the right fit. Hmm. And that's if you get the best most honest salesperson in the world. Obviously, let's <laughs> let's be very clear, we've all worked with disingenuous salespeople and we've worked with people who weren't very good at sales. And, you know, there are some styles that are very much about hard selling and almost beating people mm. submission, but it doesn't work anymore. You know, what we talk about is consultative selling. We're talking about transparent communication. We're talking about articulating information in a digestible way. We're talking about helping and empowering people to make a decision that they are happy with. And that's how you get maximum buy-in. You know, and if we translate that into a corporate setting, those skills are massively transferable across other areas. You know, communication and having good, clear communication is worthwhile in a managing of team setting. It's worthwhile from a marketing standpoint. It's worthwhile from a getting along with your coworkers mm-hmm. <laughs> perspective. You know, if we look at articulating information in the right way and concisely, then we can understand how we can get more stakeholder buy-in for new projects and initiatives. We can understand how to explain commercial benefits, build business cases better. So it's those kinds of skills, practical skills, alongside emotional intelligence, the listening, the you know communication piece, the human-to-human elements that I think we don't understand or that we don't factor in as being a big skill for salespeople to have. But it's actually the, the biggest tool in their arsenal. Yeah, I, I really like that sense of tuning into the emotional intelligence. And I think one of the mindset shifts for me when I've been doing the work with, with you has been just really kind of converting it to the fact that I'm having a conversation with people, nothing more, nothing less. Yeah. And as a leader, as you've kind of alluded to, you need to have conversations with people to build connection and to build trust. The art of a good conversation, what does that look like and how do you start to build those skills? I th- so I think that's a really good question because most people ask me, 
how can I sell without being salesy? Mm. Even in a corporate environment, they're like, how can I sell something into the board without them feeling like I'm selling it? And the reality is it does all come down to having a decent conversation. And I think that there are probably three phases. If we looked at what made up a successful sales conversation, we'd be looking at one expectation. I think people give sales itself a bad rep because we have this idea that it is sleazy, that it is false, that we're trying to achieve something, persuade, convince, force, right? But actually, we're just talking about mismanaged expectations. Mm. Because if every salesperson came to every stakeholder and said, hey, I want to have a discussion with you about whatever you're doing in X particular area, that person can then make a decision about whether they want to have that conversation or not. So if we start looking at the art of conversations and having successful conversations, the first thing we have to do is manage the other person's expectations. What are we actually going to talk to them about? And is this a conversation that they can choose to enter into or not? Because if we're looking at difficult conversations in the workplace, for example, around bullying or harassment or something like that, you might be having those with a team member who doesn't get to choose whether or not they're having that conversation. So the expectation and setting that expectation around what that conversation is going to be about, when it's going to happen and how that's going to go is just as important as setting the expectation for somebody that you are trying to generate buy-in from or make a sale with. So I think that's the first part is that understanding and managing Mm. somebody else's expectations. That leads you into being able to have a transparent and honest conversation because then everyone knows what's going on. I think the worst thing about conversations is when somebody starts it with, how are you? And you'll know that. That's my pet peeve. Yeah, I say this all the time to people. It's not, I don't care how people are. But the majority of work situations, I don't. I, I want to get to the meat and potatoes of whatever's going on. And when we talk about conversations, a lot of the time people go in with no agenda. They've got no understanding of what's actually going to happen. So if we first manage the expectations, everyone shows up prepared, which is a win. The second part of our conversations is actually being able to ask good questions. People often don't think about conversations, again, because they're not usually prepared for them. They happen off the cuff. There's no agenda. If we actually think about the purpose of our conversation and what we want to achieve from it, we can ask much better questions. Mm. And that leads to much more transparent communication. Also usually leads to situations being resolved more quickly or moved forward more quickly. So I think, you know, ask those key questions, even if they feel uncomfortable. And that's very much a sales skill that I think is underappreciated and sometimes (laughs) disliked (laughs) immensely. But it is getting down to the nuts and bolts of why something is working or why something isn't working. And being unafraid to consultatively talk through it. It's not saying your idea is rubbish um, and, and dismissing what somebody's saying, but it's about asking questions around why they believe something to be working or not working and being okay with seeing that through and challenging people consultatively. And then I think the final part is being able to demonstrate active listening. I'm very guilty of this in a conversation because I have ADHD. I'm so eager to show somebody that I'm listening that I'll nod incessantly. Mm-hmm. I'm like that Churchill dog on the adverts <laughs> and I'll, I'll nod and be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually, it's one of the things I've had to work really hard at over the years because that doesn't benefit the people at the other end of my conversation. Because in me trying so hard to demonstrate that I'm actively listening by moving and yeah, 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 
what that can inadvertently show is that I'm not listening or I'm just trying to move them along. And Mm. that's actually not it. So what we mean by active listening is genuinely participating in a conversation. You know, is the person making some kind of notes about what they might want to say next? Are they able to summarize back to you something that was important? Or are they able to give a clear and articulate summary of the conversation without dragging any kind of emotional standpoint into it, particularly if it's been a difficult one? And are they able to set those next steps for what needs to happen? It's those skills that demonstrate active listening and give a good conversation Mm. as opposed to one person feeling like they've been a bit railroaded into making some kind of decision. Yeah. There is so much to unpack there. And um, (laughs) (laughs) I, I mean, the listening thing is something that I bang on about a lot in the work that I do, because often particularly leaders who are trying to sell their ideas or their strategy and get and get action, they tend to go into conversations with the, how can I get my point across? So they're listening for mm. gaps to interject and get their point across rather than listening to the whole person and the kind of nonverbal cues and all, all that. So I think that that is definitely a muscle that needs to be exercised and, and is quite hard. You mentioned kind of your ADHD there. What have you had to do specifically to keep you focused, I suppose, in those listening conversations? <laughs> ADHD is is becoming such a big topic right now. And, and I will say to everybody who's listening, I was diagnosed by the time that this episode airs, I will have been diagnosed for about a year. And in all honesty, it wasn't something that really surprised me. If anyone has ever met me, you will know. Oh, yeah, of course. And and that was the reaction of a lot of people, I think, when I said, oh, I've been diagnosed with ADHD. Everyone was like, yeah, obviously. I felt like the only person on the planet who didn't really know. But I think that having ADHD can be like having a superpower in some ways mm. because naturally you are more attuned to pick up the things that perhaps people aren't saying. So people who have ADHD, specifically women who have ADHD, are more likely to pick up on nonverbal cues better. And they're more likely to be able to think in a nonlinear way, which means that when you're having conversations, somebody with ADHD can probably problem solve in a very different and much quicker way. I think the difficulty with it is that I often find that my mind moves a million miles a minute so either I will trip up over my words because I'm like, oh, I can I can see where I'm going. I know what my point is. Or I will have had half of a conversation in my head and or I'd be at the end before somebody else has even started. And that can be really frustrating. So you kind of have to watch that if you have those particular traits on, on the neurodiversity scale. I think, though, the interesting thing about managing conversations with ADHD is that for a lot of people, you can often feel like you're checking out of conversations, which makes it hard to demonstrate that you're an active listener. Because often you're not checking out, you're just moving ahead in a conversation. You can see how it's going to play out. You can see how the problem is going to be solved. And so particularly from a sales perspective, people with ADHD need to really make sure that they're stepping back and that they're covering all their bases. They're asking all the right questions to define all of the practicalities of things before they jump ahead. Otherwise, they jump straight into problem solving. And maybe that hasn't actually even been asked for. Mm -hmm. So I think if you do have neurodiverse traits or you've been diagnosed um, as being neurodiverse, you really have to think about what it is that you want, make sure that other people are in the same part of the conversation that you are. 
and then define whatever your coping strategies are. For me, medication twice a week I take because it's not cumulative um, ADHD medication. Brilliant. I use it on the days that I don't have clients because it means that my mind is completely clear and I can just sit down and work, which is unbelievable. Mm. However, on days that I do have clients, it wouldn't be as useful for me because my mind wouldn't be able to think in the same way. And that's what makes my brain valuable to the people I work with. So on those days, demonstrating active listening by things like taking notes, by being able to summarize, by making sure that I've got an idea of where I want a conversation to go or a reminder of the questions that I want to ask makes my life a lot easier and makes people feel heard. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. So it's an interesting one because I was thinking my husband hasn't got ADHD that we know. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> but, but often I have conversations with him and he's raced ahead. And, and actually on the receiving end, it can feel quite frustrating at times yeah. because he's like, I've, I've already thought through every ramification of what you're about to say. And I'm, yep. <laughs> so I can, <laughs> I, can, um, I can imagine like having that knowledge and awareness if you're that kind of person that, that perhaps does run ahead in a conversation, whether you've got ADHD or, or any other condition, or it's just a personality trait in the way that you work, is a really important checking, I suppose, that you need to do, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think if you don't check in, the risk is that the other person feels unheard, mm-hmm. you know, and that's exactly like you. And my husband, for the record, also doesn't have ADHD, but does exactly the same thing. You know, <laughs> he'll have, you know, 20 conversations in his head and say something. And I'm like, where has that even come from? But if it's not done with somebody that's particularly close to you, I mean, you and I both married those people, so we're kind of stuck with that. But if it's in a work capacity, that's super frustrating because you don't feel heard, you don't feel listened to. And when that is somebody who's part of your team, the risk is that they then don't feel valued Mm. and that their contribution is not valuable. And that's a really dangerous place to lead from, I think. Everyone deserves to show up and feel like they're being heard everyone deserves to show up and make a valuable contribution. And sometimes we have to make sure that we're on board with everybody else getting that buy-in. And part of the process to getting buy-in from people is letting them process their thoughts in their own way and giving them time to percolate things. You know, if you're neurodiverse, maybe you don't need that time, but other people really do. So be empathetic to those choices. The other thing, when you were talking through your your list of three things that make a a great conversation... Your second point, you talked about often people go into conversations with no agenda. Mm. And one of the things that was working through my brain at the time, even though I was actively listening. (laughs) (laughs) We're always worried about that now. (laughs) Yeah. Was that often people feel really uncomfortable with small talk and they think, oh, if I've got to have conversations with people who I don't know or don't know Mm -hmm. how to speak on the daily, it's this really uncomfortable thing of having to make small talk in order to connect. So you've kind of just yeah debunked that one. And I just wanted to make that point as you... <laughs> Action's such a weird thing there, isn't it? Because from a sales perspective, people tell me this all the time. They're like, oh, Jess, but you just don't know because it's called developing rapport. Like I've never heard of it. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm a human being. I've had conversations before. I know how they go. The difficulty is not everybody cares to small talk. I'm somebody who's introverted. So small talk makes me want to shove hot forks in my eyes. Like I just Me too. Uh, yeah, see, it's that kind of thing. Oh, and, and people do it under the guise of 
trying to be friends with you or something, they'll go, oh, I've got a dog. Oh, I've got a dog. Oh, what's your dog's name? And by the time you know it, 25 minutes have gone past and you're like, I just don't care. And you can really like dogs, but still not care. I'm conscious of how I started this interview. (laughs) I was just thinking that, oh dear. Um, But it's that kind of thing, isn't it? So I think the interesting thing is that we, (laughs) we kind of mix up connection, rapport, and what we think it means to be polite. Mm. And I think that that's an interesting mix because developing rapport with somebody or building connection or building relationships with people does not mean they inherently have to like you. Mm. And it doesn't mean that they have to agree with all of your values or the things that you believe either. But developing connection and rapport and building relationships is about understanding what's mutually beneficial and working towards that goal. That's what builds a great relationship, whether you're talking in a professional capacity or in a personal capacity, it's mutually beneficial. And so when we talk about building rapport, people get really confused between understanding that it is polite to say, hey, I'm really excited to record an interview with you today, or hey, I'm really excited to start working on this project with you today. And that it's then okay to be like, great, so let's get down to brass tacks. Like, mm. what are we doing? How are we spending our time? Because we've been polite. And the actual connection piece might come from being really good at our job and just showing up and doing the things that we're supposed to be doing. That might build really good rapport with another colleague. In the sales world, it's very unusual for salespeople to do what they say they're going to do when they say they're going to do it. It's very rare. So it can build really good connection and relationships with external providers, with stakeholders, with internal board members and things, because you're building that connection by demonstrating you can be trusted. Right? So it's simple things that build connection and rapport. We shouldn't mistake that with politeness and small talk, mm-hmm. you know, unless you're going to some awful spousal networking event, which I frequently have to do because my husband's in the army. So that tends to be full of small talk. But <laughs> <laughs> you've, you've, kind of bridged into where I wanted to bridge into Ah. actually which was was this building and developing your network because again it's something that I I do strategy days with leaders where we look at what their objectives are and then we look objectively at who they need to have around them and who they need to be influencing and building rapport and connection I often think that leaders don't do enough of this being really objective on who they need in their team Who's, who's their support network and who are the people who are almost the strategic levers to get what they need to achieve. And as your needs change as a leader, your network needs yeah. to change. I'm interested, I suppose, in what you've noticed as you've advised and supported people in how they go about building the right networks. Networks are really hard. I was reading something a few weeks ago and I cannot for the life of me remember who wrote it. So if you are interested in the point I'm about to make, please go and look it up because I don't want to do anyone a disservice. (laughs) Um, But I was reading something the other week that talked about the amount of relationships that any one person could realistically manage. The person's work I was reading suggested that the average person can only actually maintain seven to 10 close relationships at a time, Mm. which actually is a very small amount, given that most of us, I mean, I don't know, I have like a few hundred friends on Facebook. Obviously, they're not all my friends. Obviously, I'm not WhatsApping them all all the time, but they are part of a network. And I think, again, an interesting point about connection and relationships is that people assume that their network has to be people they're super, super close to all the time. 
I think the other interesting point before you even think about building your network is how open are you to asking for help? Mm. Because most leaders are not. The problem with building a network is that if we take it back to that idea that relationships are designed to be mutually beneficial, it can be really problematic. Because often with leaders, and I see it particularly with women, people who identify as, as female, we have a tendency to overgive and underask. And that becomes a real problem with networking. Because if you're the one who's always giving, you can end up in a really resentful position. You can also end up in a really fearful position where you're worried to bring other people in strategically around you because you worry about how that's going to impact your career. I know that that's something I really worried about in my 20s, competitiveness and and Mm -hmm. things. And then the other thing is that you will never benefit fully from the network unless you're prepared to ask for things when you want them. So I think those are the things that we always have to think about before we even start relationship building, you know, is Mm -hmm. how many relationships realistically can I manage? How do I want them to look? And am I prepared to leverage them in the right way? And that shouldn't be a sleazy kind of feeling. Like we should just be like, I would be prepared to help other people. I assume that they would want to do the same for me, but we don't. When it comes to building those relationships, there are lots of different methods that you can use. I think depending on where you are in your career, most people will experience some form of networking in their job, whether that's external with clients or whether it's internal and, you know, building your reputation within the business itself. And I think that networking is still the most common way of building your own brand or your own influence with the organization that you work with or in your industry. I think networking is difficult for a lot of people because we do see it as small talk and having to stand behind a table with a glass of warm white wine usually. Mm. And I don't know why that is, but it seems to be a prerequisite. And we almost have to do this elevator pitch of, you know, this is who I am, this is what I do. And in some senses, that might be appropriate. Mostly, no. No. I think we need to approach networking differently and building relationships differently. And that needs to be very much from the beginning. Here's how I help people like you. Here's who I'm looking to support people like me. That might not be the commonplace way to do it now, but in 10 years' time, I think it will pretty much all go that way. You know, Mm -hmm. if I was to walk up to you at a networking event, for example, and say, Hey, Lee, my name's Jess and I am a sales expert and I am looking to add people to my my network who are able to support leaders with emotional intelligence and mindset and strategy. And in return, I'm looking to build a network of people who can introduce me to leaders who might need support with sales. Is this a good fit? What's wrong with that? Mm. It's direct. It's awkward, I think, for most people. But you can dress it up and down depending on how formal you want it to be. It gives the other person a transparent opportunity to be like, yeah, sure, that sounds great. Or, oh, I'm not the right person for that. Linked to transparency, I suppose, mm. is, I suppose, it, well, it's, actually, it's not linked to transparency at all. I'm talking rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> That's transparent. There you go. <laughs> it's, got a, it's got a similar sounding word, but it's not transparency <laughs> at all. <laughs> I want to talk about consistency. Ah, my favourite thing, yeah. Which is something that you've shown me and you bang on about a lot. And oh, yeah. I perhaps haven't been as great at doing that but I also know from my the work I do with kind of corporate leaders and from my corporate life 
that uh, repetitiveness and consistency can be a real challenge for particularly CEOs. They can get bored quite quickly um, if they have to keep saying the same things and doing the same things. And if I've had one conversation, I've had a hundred with people going, just because you've said it a lot doesn't mean that everyone's heard it because your audiences are different, blah, 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 blah. How do you build a consistent practice into what it is that you're doing? to and keep it sounding fresh I suppose so that you feel motivated I intensely dislike motivation yeah I think motivation is a real killer for consistency and generally performance um because how motivated I am on a daily basis depends on a variety of things you know Mm. have I been outside have I had enough television time have I had enough time to sleep do I you know have a good relationship with my husband that day have we just had a fight like all of those things impact how motivated I feel and are completely external to the tasks that I will need to do that day. For me, motivation is really, really difficult because it is something that I would love to wake up and be like, oh my God, I'm so motivated every day to do my job. But I don't think anyone is. Mm. I think some days you wake up and you have the perfect morning. You listen to the right music on your commute on the way in. You get up out of bed on the right side. Your clothes fit. You look great. You feel motivated because you're having a really good day. And other days you have to dig deep and you have to rely on my old friend discipline. (laughs) And unfortunately, (laughs) discipline is much less sexy, but produces 99% of the results. Motivation can give you a really good idea. It can make you really positive, really innovative, and to a certain degree, magnetic about certain things. Mm -hmm. Discipline, the doing it every day, infinitely more difficult. And I think in all honesty, the only way that I've been able to do it, particularly as somebody who is neurodiverse and finds that there isn't a lot of dopamine in discipline and consistency, is understanding and connecting to the goal. Why am I doing it? I think that over time, we've seen so many iterations and ideas around like connect your goal, connect your big vision. And lots of people have different methods that work for them. If you want a vision board, if you're somebody who journals, if you're somebody who has a really good morning routine, maybe somebody who meditates. To be honest, I don't really care what it is that you do. It's just that daily repetitive thing that sets you up for success. For me specifically, It's about time blocking and about working in the right way for me. So I'm somebody who works really well in the morning. That's when I can get emails done. It's when I think at my most clear. And it's when I can work on my own business with complete Mm. clarity. In the afternoons, I'm much better at emotional connection. It's much easier for me to have meetings. It's much easier for me to deliver trainings. I've got a lot more patience answering questions and things because it's almost like my brain has had a chance to (laughs) hence why we've been we're having this conversation in the afternoon (laughs) right this is prime just emotional time but it's that kind of thing isn't it and it's understanding how you work and when you work best and almost what they used to call it five years ago they called it performance hacking which I thought was ridiculous because in corporate nobody talks about that but actually I can go with it as a term now it's about understanding and playing to your strengths. Mm. I call it self-leadership. Ooh, it's, I like that. It's, you can't lead others unless you lead yourself. And part of that is your systems and your own processes, your boundaries, all of that kind of stuff. Exactly. And, and that's exactly it. I think when we talk about consistency, 
sometimes it's about just saying, okay, look, I don't want to sit there and do lead generation every day. Nobody in sales does. Honest to God, like it's a lot of copy and paste. You'll know this, you mm-hmm. know. It's, it's a lot of measuring your metrics. It's a lot of looking on LinkedIn and identifying people. It's a lot of rejection, if we're honest. However, it's also, if we look at the flip side, a lot of connection. It's a lot of relationship building. It's a lot of things that can end up playing out really well for us in terms of revenue, productivity, being able to deliver the things that we want to deliver, connecting with the people we want to work with. I think we have to always connect it to whatever that bigger goal is going to be. Mm and understand that we don't have to like it. There are hobbies outside of work that should be motivating you. There are things in your life that you should be doing that are far more enjoyable than working. Doing the work and showing up consistently every day is just helping you to achieve those things, you know, in your evenings, in your weekends, in your time off, whatever that might look like. I really like that reframe because I think often we can get caught up in the I feel like everything I do needs to have meaning and purpose. And actually the meaning and purpose is the big picture stuff. Yeah. And sometimes you've got to take little steps, which could be boring and can be a bit kind of soul destroying at times. <laughs> yeah, 100%. But I do them because I like paying my mortgage. Like, yeah. That's yeah. It. I, yeah. I want to keep living in my house. So am yeah. I going to do those things and, and whatever? It's the same with anything. I think if you look for motivation all the time, you spend so much time looking to be motivated that you actually miss out on it when it's eventually there because your brain is so tired from Mm. looking for the motivation. You end up not doing the things. You just have more big ideas and big dreams and big goals that don't actually ever get implemented. Yeah. Can we touch on rejection? Oh, yeah. So it's something that you deal with a lot in sales. It's something you talk about a lot and you talk a lot about the mindset work that you have to do so you don't derail yourself every time you get a no. And obviously rejection happens in leadership too. So not everyone's going to like you. Not everyone's going to agree with your plans. You might not always get that job or that contract or whatever it is that you really want. What advice would you offer to someone who struggles with that side of the role? If you never want to be rejected, you have to accept you're always going to be very bad at your job. Yeah. Is my advice. Top performers will see more rejection than average performers or low performers. And that sucks <laughs> because <laughs> most top performers do not love being rejected because the dichotomy there is if you are a top performer, you're somebody who's used to doing really well and rejection stings. There is nothing that is ever going to take the edge off of that. And there is nothing that anyone can say to you that will ever make rejection easier, which is why we all fear it. I think, though, that the way, on, the way that I look at it is the more rejections I have, the more yeses I'm also going to have because it means I'm putting myself out there. So for every no I get, I know that there's another yes right around the corner. And I also don't take it personally. Rejection in some cases is very personal. I am the the woman who left once a three minute voice note for a man who I was dating, who I'd been on two dates with and both dates were appalling. So I shouldn't have gone on the second one. <laughs> but when he messaged me to say, would you come out on another day? I, I left him a, the voice note of hell. I just I used the word transparently 17 times and my friend Lauren was appalled. I left him this voice note and I was, uh, voicemail and I was really clear. These are all the reasons that I don't want to go on another date with you. And in hindsight, in my late 20s, I could have been kinder about that, but I wasn't mean. I was just clear. And not four months later, after getting this rejection, when I was dating somebody else, this man messaged me and he said, I just don't understand why we didn't work out. Would you like to go on another date? And I was like, no, I refer you to my voice note. Like, <laughs> you know, 
And so I think from that, what I learn is A, that not everybody listens when they're being rejected and B, rejection really isn't personal. You know, even if you're dating somebody, you're just not the right fit for them right now. That's kind of it. We often internalize rejection, which is where it becomes personal. We internalize, oh, I didn't get that job. I must not be good enough. Oh, I didn't get that deal. Oh, they must hate me. Oh, that person didn't pick up my call today. They must not like me for whatever reason. And it's the internalizing of it that's the issue. A lot of the time, it's just a, this isn't a priority right now, or we don't have budget for that right now, or we're going to work on this with an internal resource or with an external resource right now, or we don't think you're qualified for that right now. The operative phrase here is right now. Don't believe that there's ever a rejection in business. You know, in personal life, it's very different, but in business, I don't believe that there's a rejection that isn't all out. No, I hate you. You will never get that job, make that sale, work with us. That's not how the business world works. I think it's uh, unfortunately rejection it just becomes a part of your business life that mm-hmm. you should end up celebrating because the more of it you have the more opportunities you are probably winning elsewhere you know and the trick is to not let it get you into a vicious cycle of i've lost this one deal or i've lost this one job i'm going to lose the others and self-sabotaging mm. other opportunities mm-hmm. you know i think that's that's probably what people should worry about a little bit more how how do you know i mean Obviously, with certain things, if you've been not offered a job, you're not going to necessarily go back to them and go, hang on a minute, I think you need to rethink this. But in other other situations, it might be an ongoing dialogue. And so that first no or that first opposition might not be the final. So how do you know when you should keep going with a discussion and when it's time to back off? I think it's about feedback, actually. When we look at rejection, so many people never ask for feedback. And even if we look at the job example, I've had companies who've invited me to be part of their workforce for years. And I've been running my own business for almost 10 years now. And still they contact me and be like, are you sure you don't want (laughs) to come in and do something? My rejection is always, it's not the right time. Doesn't mean it will never be the right time. Because my feedback for them is always they're building the relationship in the right way. They're never rude. They're never aggressive. They're just every six months or so checking in. How's that going? So I think when we look at rejection and knowing when to continue a conversation or when to push, it's about what feedback do we have? Is it that we just didn't answer the questions in an interview? If that's the case, is there an opportunity to redo? And when you've got that feedback, is there an opportunity to redo that situation? Maybe and maybe not. With other things that are simpler, like winning or losing a deal, If you lose a deal in sales world, you always ask why. And you are clear that it's a relationship building exercise. Hey, I'm I'm really sorry we won't be working together on this occasion. Can I ask for your feedback so that next time I can make sure that we give you the right solution? Because we always want to keep building relationships with people. There's never really a rejection that you wouldn't want to. It's just making sure that you get the feedback and then that you respond appropriately to that. I'm conscious of our time, but I do want to touch briefly, and we've talked a little bit about your ADHD diagnosis. I mean, you're a leader of your own business. It's a very successful business, and you do that whilst you've been open about the fact that you've got ADHD and you've also got a long-term condition as well. And I'm sure there's many people listening, me included, who are facing 
similar situations and would perhaps welcome your insights yeah, yeah. and I suppose prove that it's possible to still successfully yeah. lead <laughs> what's been your learning as you've kind of worked through your diagnosis and had to adapt how you run your business I for those of you listening who don't know about my health background I was diagnosed with myalgic encephalitis when I was 24 23 24 the consultant who diagnosed me, because it's a really difficult condition um, and has lots of umbrella conditions that go with it, like osteoarthritis and chronic fatigue and all that kind of good stuff. The consultant who diagnosed me said, if I didn't do something to change my life, I would be in a wheelchair by the time I was 35. And that was terrifying, you know, at, at that age. And I am 34 in, oh, 10 days. <laughs> so by the time you guys listen to this, I'll be 34 in a bit. Um, <laughs> but I'm 34 in 10 days and I'm, I'm not in a wheelchair. And I, I ran the London Marathon in 2021 and I've done other things that I didn't think I'd be able to do. I made the decision to give up my job because my working hours in a sales capacity were 70 plus hours a week. And it just wasn't viable for my health. I will say starting a business is also not a small <laughs> endeavor. So I don't think I went from doing 70 hour weeks to doing 10 hour weeks. I, I feel like actually I probably ended up doing more, especially for the first six to 12 months. What I will say is that I learned much better boundaries and that helped me manage my condition in a much better way. So I haven't had a flare up in four years um, and I used to be bedridden for like six weeks at a time. My body just wouldn't do anything. I put that down to having stronger boundaries and being able to say, no, actually, I can't take on this project now. And pushing back on clients who want things immediately, but actually, just if I did them immediately, would completely put me at risk of, of burnout. The worst thing about that, and saying no, and putting those boundaries in place, is that people don't actually mind. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And I used to really freak out as somebody who's very type A. I'd be like, oh God, but if I say no to this piece of work, they'll go elsewhere. Or if I say that I can't help that person, they'll really dislike me and that'll, you know, reduce my chances of being promoted and things. And actually what I've learned is that if you have strong boundaries that you implement compassionately, people are very happy to support you in that. Saying to people, yes, I'd love to work on that project with you unfortunately, my diary will only let me dedicate that amount of time to you in X number of weeks. How can we make this work? Is very different than saying, you will have to work around my schedule. I'm too good. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm just too busy to take on this work with you. And so I think the key really is have those boundaries, deliver them compassionately, be aware that you can't win everything and that that's fine. And also learn to be selfish. I think it's a, a trait with anyone who's experienced any kind of burnout is that selfish is this dirty word. And unfortunately, you know, your idea of self-leadership is perfect, right? You have to be self-centered if you want to build the career that you want and also have the health that you need. Ugh, I'm not going to wax on about how we only get one body and blah, blah, blah. Like there are plenty of health experts who'll tell you all that kind of stuff. And I'm not a health expert. But I do believe that we should be making more self-centered choices and understanding, particularly if you work for an organization, that you are not indispensable and that you shouldn't ever try to be as a leader. Mm. You know, that the whole point of leading is that you empower other people to build something bigger than you. A lot of the issues that I had were that I was building something that was mainly driven by me 
that I was the the main driving force behind and that I didn't believe or let anyone else help me because I didn't think anyone else could do it the way that I could. And in doing that, ultimately, I did a lot of things a lot smaller. I could have probably progressed a lot quicker in certain areas if I had been open to relinquishing some of the control. That I think is a lesson that all leaders need. You know, Mm. the best leaders know how to empower their best people to do their best work. That's something I learned, I don't know, 10 years too late. And it's something that I really, really hold close now. If you had to change, I suppose, the type of support you put around you to help Mm. that now? Yeah, massively. I think I'm a typical impulsive, like ADHD person. I'm really good with ideas. I have tons of ideas and, and the things that I'm passionate about, you know, my sales training, I love. So I can spend hours doing it and I never get bored. And it's, it's just the best thing ever. Ask me to fill out an Excel spreadsheet or sit down with an accountant for an hour. And I honestly, I'm just itching. Like <laughs> I just need to get out. So for me, it was about finding people who were solid implementers in the areas that I wasn't. Yeah. I'm good at building the vision. I'm good at doing the the delivery of the things I love. Do I want to sit down and go through every tax report from day dot? No, absolutely not. Do I want to sit down and go through all our social media posts and see who's liked things? No, like I, that's just not for me. So building those teams of people. And for me, that looks like having a really good assistant, having really good people in our customer care team, having really good people around who can look at the finances and who are willing to work in the way that I do. I don't want endless emails with lots of big blocks of text because I won't read it. But if you put things in bullet points or you record me a short Loom video, cool. I can do those things and, and it will work. Mm. And I think that's what leaders need to be looking for is hire the people that you can impart some wisdom too and also can work with you in your idiosyncrasies because we all have them. Yeah. And it's about having awareness of where your superpowers are and where perhaps you do need a boost of someone else's energy to fill those gaps because you, you'll waste so much time or you procrastinate and avoid the, the big stuff that you need to be doing. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, look, we've all got to-do lists that are about a mile long. <laughs> I say that because in sales, I email loads of people and everyone's really busy all the time. Yeah. I get it. Like <laughs> we're, we're all in that, that kind of state. I think the pandemic especially showed us that leaders who were isolated really struggled mm. and found it a lot more difficult because suddenly they weren't in control. They, they didn't have their normal coping strategies of people being in the office and being able to say to that person, have you done that thing? and watch them as they send the email, micromanagers really took a hit. And I think that that's been really valuable, but it's a really difficult lesson to maintain as we all migrate back into offices and things because old habits just slip in. I think that we have to learn to A, build our team in the right way and B, respect them to do the things that we're paying them to do and let them get on with it and let them innovate in their own way. Yeah. That totally goes back to your point about boundaries. So it's not only the boundaries of how you are interacting with people, but it's about protecting other people's boundaries and their work and and all of that. Because if you're not showing respect to other people, how can you expect it of your own? Exactly. And I think the worst thing is everybody hates being a micromanager and everybody hates working for a micromanager. Mm. Unfortunately, I would hazard a guess that most micromanagers are just dealing with previous trauma from having not been able to have transparent conversations or being worried about rejection or 
all the other things that we've talked about today. And actually, at some point, you just have to learn to let go a little bit and let other people prove what they can do in their own terms. And be okay with the fact that the people that you manage and the people you lead will probably be more successful than you, quicker than you ever have been. Mm. And that that's a compliment to who you are and to your leadership, you know, not a competitive element. I love that. So my final question is, what's the one piece of advice, sales advice, that you wish every leader would pay attention to? (laughs) In the words of Nike, I wish that they would just do it. Sales is one of those things. It doesn't get any easier. It can be a lot simpler, but it doesn't get any easier to face rejection. It doesn't get any easier to consistently try and work on new campaigns. What gets better is the fact that if you just keep doing the right activities, regardless of how motivated you feel or not, you will start to see results and you cultivate that virtuous cycle of, great, we're starting to see results. We should do more of this work. And then you do more of the work and you see more of the results. So I don't think it's about anything hugely philosophical or or academic. It's just crack on, do the thing consistently, get better results. Yeah, I love that. Thank you. So if people want to get in touch follow you i know you put some great stuff on linkedin i'm like super fan of your podcast as well (laughs) how how can people kind of follow and get in touch yeah if you're interested in sales and you're working in a corporate environment you want advice for your sales team we have a corporate podcast called marginal gains maximum profit so you can go and listen to my dulcet tones over there and also my epic co-host as well and if you're somebody who's thinking about making a break from the corporate world you can check out the selling to corporate podcast if you think that there is ever a risk that you may need to sell your own services or products (laughs) you can always check out the tips and tricks there as well brilliant thank you so much for your time today if you enjoyed this episode please let me know on apple podcasts or on your app of choice and drop me a line over on linkedin you can find me at lee griffith i'll be back with the next episode in two weeks time so in the meantime remember to sign up to my newsletter at sundayskies.com for further insights on how to lead with impact until next time